This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast covering all things on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Baden, and I'm here today with two guests uh, talking to us from Paris, Coralie Lorenzen and Sylvain Cognier-Dauphal. Did I get the, the pronunciation close enough, Sylvain? Hey, that's all great. Right. Thanks. He's giving a thumbs up for, for all of those who are listening and, and can't see, but but as as listeners know, I mess up names often during the introduction of this podcast, so I was a little worried about so long. But thank you both for joining today, and the idea for us today is to talk about nuclear, to talk about nuclear power specifically in Europe, and obviously with the energy crisis in Europe right now, there's a lot of attention focused on gas, a lot of attention focused on alternatives to gas, and nuclear is increasingly part of the conversation as a potential, I guess, gaining favor as a potential low-carbon alternative to other forms of energy, though some of the risks and concerns about nuclear that have been around for um, several decades continue to, I I suppose, lead to ambivalence. Um, One of the more recent activities, just to highlight to to some of the listeners, the the European Parliament voted about two weeks ago, July 6, to apply green labels to to both natural gas and nuclear power in terms of the EU sustainable finance taxonomy. Um, And and so I think that caught, um, there's some caveats around both of those, which we'll get into, Um, but but all of that just to indicate that that policymakers, consumers, all, all sorts of activities happening around nuclear in ways that I think are new and different and perhaps unexpected from just where we were six months ago, 12 months ago. And so we wanted to have a conversation uh, around that and, and consider what it means for listeners and and for uh, interested energy watchers going forward. So, so Vaughn, maybe you could help kick us off and help frame what, what's going on uh, in, in Europe right now as it pertains to, to, to nuclear energy. Okay, well, thanks, Yael. Thanks for inviting us and a great time. Happy to be here to talk about nuclear in Europe. And when we think about nuclear in Europe, clearly we agree there's a lot of, you know, focus on this technology a technology that perhaps in recent years had disappeared off the map. But right now it's back and for two reasons. First, there's obviously how nuclear can help contribute and manage the the, the upcoming crisis that Europe is is really facing regarding its energy supply and in particular gas and power, this whole integrated complex. Uh, And then there's rather the long-term discussion taking place. And and focus first on the short term, Clearly, what we hear from the market is a need for new capacity to remain online this winter. And we've heard governments aiming to extend the lifetime of nuclear, be it in Belgium, being in Germany, or even when you think longer term in France, uh, you know, Finland or, or Hungary. So it is really a question of how existing nuclear provides a lot of benefits to the system because it is considered as a way to diversify uh, the uh, power supply mix. It is considered as a technology that can replace, you know, gas-fired generation, and gas is the name of the game today. And it is also considered a technology, obviously, that doesn't impact the environment as badly as coal. So this is why it, it is making the front lines. When we're thinking about the long term, it's really around decarbonization. It's really about, you know, having a diversified mix of low-carbon technologies that can help really electrify end users. Uh, be directly via direct electrification, heat pumps, or indirectly 
via hydrogen. And we clearly see those two aspects coming together to build a case for nuclear across Europe, be it in terms of lifetime extensions, but also being in terms of uh, new builds. Now, at the same time, the current situation also puts in focus the complexities that are specific to nuclear. Nuclear just cannot be considered like any other technology. It is mm -hmm. complex technologically, and it is also complex from a regulatory perspective. And, you know, when, for instance, government asks nuclear lifetime extension from the operators, there needs also to be discussion on how rapidly that can take place and even whether that's allowed from a you know, safety you know, point of view. So this is really something which is important. In the long term, you know, some of the difficulties faced with new nuclear build across Europe are really also highlighting that, you know, technology complexity, technological complexity, which is, you know, a, a trademark of nuclear. But here, there's perhaps a new angle that needs to be taken, which is everything around small modular reactors, that because of the smaller size and smaller capital requirement in itself could provide a way to allow new players to get into the nuclear game, be it large energy users, small large utilities, that basically can also contribute, have their own assets because they need to put less money on the table. So this is where also, you know, it, it's a very exciting, I would say, time for nuclear in Europe, for new builds. And we clearly look forward to having further announcements in order to grow that technology, uh, because it is considered by policy circles as of today as really one of the pillars of decarbonization. Okay, and I want to come back to the small nuclear reactors concept, but um, later in the conversation. But before we do, Corley, can you help? That this is that this feels like an about shift from, uh, I guess, what was it, Fukushima, the the the, the problem in J Japan decades ago or, or years ago that led to a change in, in the, the reception of nuclear in Europe? And can you help frame what we're talking about Europe as if it's a single thing? Is the view of nuclear different in France than Germany? Then, um, you know, how can you help frame it in terms of the receptiveness within some of these countries? Absolutely. So that, that's a great way of seeing it. I think, you know, as Sylvain said, and I want to come back to that, there's a short-term, long-term dichotomy, right? So for this winter, Europe is really desperate. You know, we can't, it's very difficult to replace all the gas that's being lost from Russia, all of that imported energy we need to replace. So this is where nuclear has a role to play and where, you know, these, these countries that have that ability, with the exception of Germany, are trying to use whatever nuclear resources they have to keep them on the market, to keep them available to get the kilowatt hours because Europe is desperate and really needs um, those kilowatt hours. But that's a real, you know, that's really a short term story. Longer term, you know, as Sylvain said, there's a lot of appetite across Europe for, for nuclear. You know, if you look, um, most Eastern European countries are looking to build nuclear, have projects, projects for, you know, additional nuclear, new nuclear. The UK has announced uh, a, a very large target for 2050. The French have, you know, confirmed that they're going to continue um, supporting and developing nuclear. So there definitely is appetite. At the same time, I think it's fair to say that nuclear's role in Europe is, is a declining role, right? Today, what is it about? I think it's about 20% or so of production in Europe, you know, sizable share of production. But in our outlook, um, when we look to 2030, it falls to 14%. And then we look to 2050, and it falls to 5%. And, you know, the reason for this, and this is where we sort of come back to the short term, is that Europe is, is putting all its chips on the table for, for renewables, really. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you look, the reason that Europe is now calling or trying to get as many of its nuclear assets still on the market, still in shape, still a, uh, operational for next winter, is because there's no way we can bring forward the renewables 
that soon. But Europe is saying that, you know, Repower EU, the Commission's uh, uh, declarations have all been, this is all about renewables. Because nuclear is one of those issues where, as Sylvain says, there's a lot of appetite from a lot of countries, but it's not a consensus across Europe. You know, not all countries love the nuclear, effectively. And the, if, if, if I'm correct on that European Parliament vote uh, a couple of weeks ago, that, that nuclear was granted the, the, the green label through 2045 compared to gas that was 2030. Is, is that right? So it's it's a little bit complex. And, you know, it's, as Sylvain said, very complex rules to go with very complex technology. But effectively, nuclear can be labeled sustainable for the purposes of um, investment labeling, provided it meets certain conditions. And the conditions are really strict. You have to be able, if you, if you get a plant permit by 2025, you have to be able to show that you've got accident uh, tolerant fuels, ATFs. So interestingly, you know, my colleagues who know this topic better than me explain to me, no one knows what an ATF is at the moment. There's no ATF that's been certified anywhere in the world. And it could mean a variety of things, you know, so it's sort of more, it's an, it's at R&D status and, you know, both in Europe and in the US, but 2025 is tomorrow. We don't have the stuff, you know, so we don't, we don't, it's not really clear what this means. However, provided that the nuclear developers can, you know, find a fuel that meets this criteria, then yes, nuclear will be sustainable, can be labeled in an investment context as a sustainable technology. Obviously, very helpful to get uh, cheaper financing. Okay. And so, Silvana, if we're thinking about this and you introduce small nuclear reactors, these SMRs, 2045, about 20, 23 years from now, nuclear is, as I understand it, often burdened or always burdened by a, a long approval process for anything new. So what's the likelihood of new? Is, on the short term, is the focus going to be on sustaining the, the reliance or, of existing reactors, or do we expect new projects to, to actually move forward with that 2045 expiration date uh, well, implicit? Well, I guess it's going to be important to assess at some point if that, you know, if these limits are really implemented. As mentioned by Coralie, you know, not being green doesn't prevent you from investing nuclear, but it is really going to add, it is going to facilitate the conversation. So even if it's, you know, if rules change over time, nuclear is essentially a political decision. So if governments want to move ahead with nuclear, they're going to be moving ahead. In yeah. terms of time frame, if you think about, you know, what, what's taking place today, right now people are thinking, okay, ex, you know, extending the lifetime of existing nuclear, which means that instead of considering 40, 50 years, people are perhaps looking at, you know, 60, perhaps 70 years. That's the case in Finland today, considering 70 years for the existing nuclear fleet. If we think about new builds, unless you're a country that are already existing nuclear, it's hard to think that new large-scale nuclear build could take place before, you know, could be commissioned before 2035, 2040. I mean, that's more or less what the Czech are, are, are targeting, building new nuclear on an existing site, but it's highly complex. You need to get stated approval. So it is not something that is done overnight. When you think about new countries that don't have any nuclear idea, like, you know, like Poland, 2035 is really extremely ambitious. And that is also assuming that people choose a technology which is demonstrated. And when you look at the difficulties of some specific projects in Europe, there's really a key question of learning from first you know, first of a kind reactors and how that learning can be applied to subsequent reactors to shorten the construction time. But new nuclear by 2040 is clearly a possibility. As mentioned by Koali, member states have very different approaches. So, you know, Southeast Europe, Eastern Europe, the Nordics and France 
and Great Britain are clearly key markets for nuclear, and Netherlands also joining the game. So it, it is not something which is really small. It, it is really gaining a lot of traction. SMRs, thanks to its smaller you know, footprint in terms of you know, capacity and associated capital requirements, allows new players to enter the game. And, and we think it's very interesting, for instance, when like large energy users in Poland now signed MOUs and deals to get into the SMR game. So okay. this is really something which is fairly new. In the past, unless you were a state-owned utility or in your large utility, it was impossible to consider you could build nuclear. Now with SMRs, it's really a kind of democratization of nuclear. And that opens you know, a bunch of new opportunities and you know, potential for new build. So instead of having a single reactor that you take you know, eight years perhaps to construct, you may have you know, capacity which is gradually increasing over time. It's easier to manage the fleet. From a grid perspective, it may be even better in order to manage congestion because you're injecting different parts of the node. Obviously, the key question is, you know, can we really construct an SMR? There's no existing, you know, commercial projects currently in Europe or even in the US, you know, it's still first stages and so on. So they get, you know, and the other question obviously is all the safety approval regulation mm-hmm. that, you know, SMRs will have to go through by your national agencies. So there are really, you know, a diversity of aspects, but in a way, SMRs could remedy or offset some of the disadvantages of large-scale nuclear. So this is why it's uh, exciting opportunities for SMRs in Europe right now. Is there a, I mean, it sounds like there's some technological advantage to SMRs. Is there a regulatory advantage to SMR at this point, or, or is that still being defined in the sense that can you move through the approval process more quickly in an SMR? I'm not sure you can move faster because it's, you know, it's perhaps old technology. So some of the safety aspects may be a bit mm-hmm. outdated compared with the latest technology. But because it's smaller scale, perhaps, you know, there will be some trade-off around that. The other point about SMR is that there are different designs and potentially each design may need to go through the safety approval. So if there was perhaps a dominating model that could, you know, and then you can have a blueprint that could be used from country to another that could accelerate the business. But keep in mind as well, there are different designs. I think our colleagues have tracked, you know, the number of designs and it's, it's you know, it's staggering. So, uh, but we'll see how it goes. So far, I think initial conversations are taking place because even European players are getting in the game, be it equipment manufacturers or utilities. Mm-hmm. So people are taking the first steps towards getting it done. And, you know, we'll see how it goes. Okay. Yeah, I wanted to interject. Thanks. Um, I think this, you know, this time scale is a major issue for Europe, right? Because as Silva was saying, if you do well, you can expect to have something by 2035. But that's if you're a country with nuclear experience and building and maintaining. If you're in a new country, you're a novice in this business, and Silva was saying Poland, for example, then that's going to be a little bit of a challenge. And you have to think that Europe is on, you know, on a sort of a rush or a competition to reduce its emissions really fast. A lot of the European countries have targets to do that, you know, 2050, but some even have 2040 or 2035. So, a you know, a 15-year lead time or a 10-year lead time is, is, really, is really too much. And that's one of the, you know, main drawbacks of nuclear is just how long it takes. And even though SMRs, you know, very attractive, smaller, possibly easier to build, cheaper, all of that. As you said, you still have to bring them through the regulatory process. You have to get this sort of stuff certified, and then you have to get, you know, your particular project approved. So the, the timescales are a hurdle here. So are we seeing that there was a, a recent report by the Atomic Energy Agency that mentioned, I think, that two-thirds of the world's nuclear power fleet was 30 years old or older, but also highly reliable. Are we seeing projects to rehab or to retrofit any of the existing European plants, um, given the the short-term needs that that Sylvain just described. 
going back to lifetime extension, there's a lot of lifetime extension decisions being made. Like in France, for instance, the government is now saying that nuclear reactors in France won't be retired for political reasons, but just mm -hmm. on safety and economical grounds. Uh, even though, you know, the current issues faced by the nuclear fleet also raises question on the performance of aging reactors. So you've got the dual aspects. But there are other, you know, experiences in Europe, like as mentioned, you know, Finland, Sweden, in which people consider that, you know, they could extend their lifetime. Hungary as well. So diversity of reactor designs as well, you know, from, you know, from Russian designs to other, you know, European, Western designs. So we'll see how it goes. It's very plant specific. It's very technology specific. It's also very operator. We'll see. But lifetime extension is, is something which makes a lot of sense in ways economically because it's a lot cheaper than, yes. you know, getting new nuclear PL. Yeah, I, I was going to say exactly that. I think, you know, whereas building a new nuclear reactor, the new kit is incredibly expensive and complicated. If you can extend what you have, then you've got the best economic project. And so, you know, those plants that are operational, provided they can be extended, they get the approval from regulators, then that, you know, that's a really interesting proposition. You mentioned the kit constraints. How about expertise kit constraints? Um, if, if if a lot of the interest here is, um, I won't say new, but but reinvigorated. If one wanted to to undertake projects, is the number of engineers available to work on these projects, whether new or, or retrofitting? That is a challenge, and actually, that's one of the challenges faced uh, across, you know, across Europe. Because obviously, I mean, looking at the lead times, people that have built the nuclear reactors are not essentially retired. So, right. so there is a question of expertise. But now, governments that think about new nuclear, they obviously also need to think about the value chain. And this, I guess, this is very important. Actually, in the case of France, you know, when they started thinking about new nuclear build in the 2030s and 2040s, people have been saying we need to have a regular stream of projects so that basically we have, you know, like a properly well-managed construction process in which, you know, perhaps skills can be transferred from a site to the other instead of building everything at once. So that needs to be carefully prepared. The other thing to keep in mind, however, at the same time, is that in some cases, the technology may not come from Europe. So, you know, mm -hmm. then it's, it's really a global business. So, for instance, if South Koreans or American reactors were to be built in Europe, then some of these South Korean skilled resources may come to Europe. Then it's a question of basically, you know, you need to think about the global picture. And Europe is not the only region really looking at nuclear or lifetime extension. Some other regions globally are also looking at nuclear. And that then becomes a different question for uh, for operators and, and, and member states uh, in terms of, you know, where do you want to get your skills from? Are you exposed to global supply chains? And that's a key topic, being exposed to global supply chains of today, and being the fuel being the UNMs. So it's it's a bit of a dual question. Now, going back to the fact that, you know, in Europe as of today, people are saying the energy transition is an opportunity mm -hmm. to get out of the energy crisis. You think about all the investments that are being mentioned in energy efficiency, electrification, and nuclear, and renewables. I mean, to me, these are also, also a lot of job opportunities that government can put on the table to justify investment as well. So it's, you know, you've got two sides of the country to look at. Is there, you mentioned the globalization, and I know within, for example, solar, that there's a concentration of supply chain within China and other countries. If we're looking at nuclear, is there a concentration of skills or kit within a particular country or region if one is looking to undertake nuclear projects? One of the aspects of nuclear is the fuel. And keep in mind that, you know, like I think from memory, 20% of the fuel that is used in European nuclear plants come from Russia, another 20% come from Kazakhstan. So perhaps the fuel is a specific aspect that needs to be to be considered. In terms of the technology itself, 
there's American technology, US technology. So it's, it's really a global business. Now, obviously, certain countries that have been building nuclear in the past have more expertise and more skills. But it really depends on which aspects you're looking at. It's, it's really specific to value chain. For instance, are you talking about the large-scale gas tur uh, you know, steam turbines? Mm -hmm. Are you looking just at the reactor itself? Or are you looking at the fuel? And you may be exposed at different levels according to which segment of the value chain you're looking at. One element that's interesting here is that um, among the people that can help build a nuclear plant are, you know, Russian companies. Right. Um, and so for Eastern Europe, a lot of the relationships or a lot of their plants have been built by Russian engineers, Russian companies. And so now there's a little bit of a, you know, hiatus because there's uncertainty as to what's going to happen here. And I think, you know, what happened in Finland recently where the Finnish government was discussing with Russian companies to build a new nuclear plant and terminated that discussion and that agreement on the grounds of the war in Ukraine is really interesting because, you know, uh, Russia was a large purveyor of, of nuclear new builds in certain parts of Europe. So if that relationship doesn't exist anymore, you know, there's a little bit of a question mark over certain projects in Eastern Europe in particular. Yeah, no, that would seem to be um... a risk. <laughs> a huge risk, yeah. <laughs> Well, so, so as we're thinking about this, and it's the, the middle of July, it's July 19th, um, you, you, we, we set up the call with the idea of there being some immediate short-term needs and some long -term, longer-term implications. Um, Coralie, maybe I'll start with you, that you, know, you mentioned that our forecast, that we still see nuclear declining in Europe from about 20% to, I think you said, 14%? Uh, over in, the next yeah, 10 by years 2030. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. And has that been flattened over the past several months as some of the energy needs have changed or been reprioritized? Or is this decline, uh, are we kind of committed to it regardless of what's happening in the short term? It's a bit of both. Um, we have seen several countries, and Silva mentioned France, the UK is another one, you know, where there's been new commitment to new nuclear. But as Sylvain said, that's going to take you know, the best part of 10 or so years. So that's not going to be before 2030. So those numbers out to 2030, they're pretty much baked in because you know what's going to close and you know you've got, unless you've got a project that's underway, you're not going to add anymore, you know. So out to 2030, we know we're going to, you know, drop the share of nuclear. And, and to be fair, there's a very age, you know, you mentioned age, that the European fleet is really an aging fleet. Um, and, while there will be new investments, it won't be like for like. For every plant that shuts, we're not going to be building one extra one. So there's, um, you know, overall, the role of nuclear in Europe is is going to decline. There are pockets of opportunity. And, you know, Silva mentioned of uh, France and the Netherlands, possibly in the UK, Eastern Europe. So there definitely are countries that are looking um, to expand the role of nuclear, or at least to replace partially the nuclear that they need to close because of age. But it's, you know, the role of nuclear going forward is going to reduce. And it's, you know, we, and it's going to be about renewables in Europe. And how about, Sylvain, on maybe the, the, the face of nuclear, that, that um, we, we saw uh, announcements in the end of last year from both E&I and Equinor investing in early stage rounding of Commonwealth Fusion Systems, uh, an MIT-affiliated uh, company that I think Microsoft or Bill Gates is also supporting. So, so there seems to be some technology that's on the fusion side. I think the power today is on the fission side, right? And, and I don't necessarily want to get into the fission versus fusion argument, but can nuclear as a technology, whether that be small modular reactors, fission versus fusion, 
Do we see that changing? Is there enough commitment to, to, to nuclear as an alternatives to, to, to fossil fuels in a greening economy to, to, to support all this? There is some commitment, but as I highlighted really high, I highlight by Coralie, uh, there's a lot of competition from renewables and you need to attract a lot of capital for both technologies. And second, it's really uh, a local discussion that needs to take place. It's really member states dependent. So, so there is some room for uh, the nuclear. Now, going into you know SMRs, it's really you know kind of the buzzword in the nuclear space in mm -hmm. a way. Fusion is the new buzzword, but you know when we hear about timescale, we're thinking you know 2050. Uh, okay. So that's you know that's still a very long term. A lot of stuff can happen by 20, uh, 2050. If we put ourselves back, you know, 30 years ago, would you know? I mean, I guess we you know we'd be looking at a bunch of technologies that never materialized, so, and a lot of other technologies that progressed faster than expected. So we'll see where we are. It is a bit, you know, it is a bit of the things that's making a return. On the hot topic, uh, there are other technologies that are being considered, like gas cooked reactors and all those things. Uh, but I guess that for the foreseeable future, I guess it's going to be traditional pressurized water technologies and a bit of SMRs, you know, small scale reactors. When we think about fusion, the need to get, you know, new pilot projects, needs to understand, you know, the safety uh, constraints associated. It's hard to imagine anything before 2050, but you know, in the past, it's uh, you've been we've been wrong with such issues. So we'll see. But that's what makes it interesting. So you know, this whole competition between technologies. All right. Well, maybe that's a good place to leave it. That I, uh, uh, you know, if I, if I summarize kind of what we've been talking about here, that that it sounds like you know there, there's a lot of interest right now, pressured by the short-term needs. Uh, but but structurally, some of the longer-term challenges uh, still exist, and, and those states or countries with established nuclear uh, presences today will, will perhaps ma maintain more so than, than uh, the, the challenges of starting something fresh uh, in some of these other countries. Well, if nothing to add, then uh, I think this is a good place to stop. And thank you both for, for making time uh, today. Well, thank you, Hal. Yeah, thanks so much. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.